O violent saint, return to me my thirties. Return to me the year I lost to cataclysm, the year I lost to grief, the year I lost to pandemic. Return to me every moment I was made to give up to catastrophe. Return to me the days I lost to each morning. Return to me the opposite of this aubergine gulf. Return to me the small space between myself and what I want. Oh, annoying saint, return to me time. Turn to me standing in front of sea thatch palms, left arm bent over steel gate, braids falling over left shoulder, my best impression of Josette. Turn to me Bibian's navy bandana print skirt wrapped around my waist. Turn to me my hands that are their hands, my fingers bent easy, loose. Turn from me suffocation of the cupping hold that protects flame from wind, that love which has kept me alight. Spread fingers, let air in. I know now I will not blow away. And even when I extinguish, there will have been hands clasped with sweat and covered in blood and twisted with hair and dripping in transit and cupped at the backs of necks. When I go out, there will be love. Turn to me flesh made soft by mezcal and poche, black beans and corn and Yucatan stomachs. Oh, counting, watching, thinking ledger, turn to me my gaze clear as the full moon. Return to me my closed mouth grin, gentle, unlike the space spreading between my teeth. Turn to me my mother's gold through me. Turn to me mommy's gold band tight around my right index finger, the one I wear only when I am out in the world. Turn to me my earrings, golden ear, the ones I asked for and received, just so I could pose for pictures like this. Turn to me anticipation of life. Oh, cruel saint, turn to me breath without dread. Turn to me growing green and thick as palm and cane. Turn to me my chance to cleave. Oh, hibiscus saint, return to me what I know. The cane grows tall with a poison that doesn't kill so much as it renders its audience quiet, swelling the tongue for a moment of silence. And in that moment, while you finally consider how it must feel to have your breath taken, I will tell you. At the end, there are only two kinds of creatures. Ones who crawl into the recliner, chest to back, feet facing pre-morning's mauve, and ones who watch you turn violet. You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique, counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Diana Xavier, 
a writer, theater maker, and educator based in Brooklyn, New York, about her new poetry collection, The Math of St. Felix, published in November 2021 by The Third Thing Press. Diane works across genres and geographies in this collection, making sense of what she calls the four L's, love, loss, legacy, and land. Her poetry, theater snippets, and thought pieces have appeared in the Atlas Review, the Racial Imaginary, Black Writers on Race in the Life of the Mind, and other publications. And in 2017, she published the chapbook, Teaches of Peaches. In our conversation that follows, we discuss the origins of the project, The Math of St. Felix, its composition in sound and word, and the place of grief, mourning, remembrance, and beauty in poetry and poetics. Diane, hello. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's really great to join you for this. I'm really excited for our conversation. Me too. Um, I'm really happy you made the time. So thank you in advance for this. Um, You know, we've known each other for a while. Uh, I knew that you had a collection of poetry coming out. And so I was excited as, as a friend to uh, read it. And when it arrived and I read the collection, um, I was just really stunned. It's, it's a, a beautiful and really complicated collection. And um, it made me, you know, I was excited for you as, as you know, someone I know, um, but also just really excited to have a chance to talk about this because I think it's, it's one of these collections that simultaneously, um, you know, uh, almost frighteningly intimate, but also extremely intellectual. And so mm. <laughs> um, it really, for me, it was a, a collection that really invited a conversation. And so when you said you wanted to uh, chat about it, I was really happy. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. I, I was so excited when you reached out because I love talking about this book, not just because I wrote it. I mean, obviously, right. But mm-hmm. I think there, I think that thing you're saying about the intimacy and the intellectualism, it's, there's a difference between feeling the thing you're writing and then being able to look back at it and be like, okay, how is this working? How is this operating? How is this maybe practicing or rehearsing itself in the world. And that's Mm, the part mm -hmm. of the book that I really love because it feels like the book gets to happen again. And that's actually secretly what I'm after. Writing the book is fine. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I think my actual scam is getting to talk to people about it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me start by asking you... um, before the after part, uh, which doesn't seem to be a scam, it seems to be actually a, a, a generous thing on both sides. But go back to the origins of the book. You know, um, a book of poetry is like any book; it's an investment of 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 spirit that is hard to fathom. I mean, it 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 requires so much of us to write and to revise and to edit and all of that. So clearly, something moves us into books right you know, right something something beyond the vanity of your name on the cover um <laughs> uh, which is you know not a bad thing but um i just want to invite you just as a way of starting off to narrate us into this book what drew you to um to the kinds of things you wanted to write about and then did write mm-hmm. about in the book and to write this as a book of poetry i mean i know that you're a poet but still to write this book of poetry about these things 
Yeah, well, you know, I always say that I'm actually trained as a playwright. I mean, trained is a tricky word. I'm a very undisciplined playwright. I don't read enough plays. I don't see nearly as much theater as I should. But that's what I'm in the business of doing. I write Mm -hmm. plays. I teach young people how to write plays. Like, this is what I do with my life. Um, Mm -hmm. And so poetry is not something that comes totally naturally to me. I had never taken a full-on poetry workshop, um, even as much as a poetry class. I've taken creative writing classes, but never something that w- that felt like it was in the institution of poetry. So it was actually a, a pretty unlikely choice. I think I leaned toward the poetic in my playwriting, but never to say, okay, I'm going to write a sonnet here, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write and obeyed here. That just, it's not what I have been trained in. It's not what I have studied. And not to say you have to be trained or studied in in these things, but- I see what you mean. Yeah, I'm a perpetual student. And so I feel like if I'm going to do something, I should have at least a a kind of practice of it. Um, But my mom passed away in late 2018 and she uh, had uh, an autoimmune uh, condition that went undiagnosed for a while and then just really went haywire. Uh, It went haywire. Um, And so it felt like this thing that was happening very quickly, but very slowly at the same time. And -hmm. when it was all over, I had the feeling that my entire world had actually fallen apart. Like I just couldn't understand anything and Uh I couldn't understand the impossibility of that month. It was exactly 30 days from um, when she was admitted to the hospital to when she passed away. And I also couldn't understand how I was then supposed to go on with my life. And Mm -hmm. I just remember having the feeling if I don't write through this, I will not be able to live. And so it was a real emergency. Mm -hmm. I I really felt like in order to be able to piece my life back together in an actual way where I wasn't just going through the motions of, you know, remaining alive, which I could do. Like I was going to work, I was eating well, you know, I, I was taking care of my sister's, um, who they're grown women. I shouldn't say that as if they're children, but you know, we were trying to be there. Sure. Sure. I understand. But it was really this feeling of if I am going to have an actual life, there is something that I need to take account of. And I can't, I can't see unless I actually place these puzzle pieces down. And Mm -hmm. so I took, I enrolled in a writing workshop. It was an actual playwriting workshop and it was going to take a year. It was called the poetry generator. And so the, the conceit was that you would spend a year putting together a poetry collection. And it mm. wasn't that I thought I was going to write a book, but I did need some structure outside of myself that could create a scaffolding for me. I needed a container I and I needed some written way to contain my grief so that I could attend to my life otherwise. So that's really how I fell into the book. And then I would say maybe four months into uh Uh, taking the workshop, 
um, I had a chat book. I had a couple of poems put together and mm-hmm. my, I had a good friend who had released a book the year prior with the third thing press, which is my publisher. And they're into what they call necessary alternatives. So that often means like hybrid collections or just books that are doing something different than you think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they would normally do. And uh, he had the publisher get in touch with me and, you know, she was like, I heard you're working on this thing. It sounds really fascinating. And I, I just said, yeah, I have this chat book. I, I don't know how to make a book, but y- you can read it if you would like. And she immediately got back to me and said, okay, we need to make this an entire book. Like you're doing something here that is important and necessary. And I want mm-hmm. to be able to help you steward that. So that's really how it sort of came to be as an idea or maybe as an intention. And then from then it was a real thing that I was working toward over the last two and a half years. It's really interesting to hear you tell that because it's a, it's a a mixture of the intense existential emotions of loss, but also practices and challenges that uh, all of us as writers, whatever kind of writing we do that we seek out Right. And, and, and professional workshops and encouragement from public. It's like interesting. Uh, it's like all the aspects of our lives sort of I know. coming I together so, to form this moment. Yeah. yeah. I was so annoyed because I was like, ah, oh, I am a writer. Like the way that I think that I'm going to get through this thing is by writing. You know, we, I think mm-hmm. writers talk very romantically about the need to write and the ways in which it can sort of help shape and form your life. And I was so, I kind of rolled my eyes when I signed up for the poetry workshop because I thought myself a cliche. Like I couldn't believe poetry was really going to be the thing that would get (laughs) me through this. And it it was in a strange way. You know, you're in communion with these people. You have the, you're arriving for the same task every week, which is to read and make poems together. Mm -hmm. And I think I needed that kind of clarity, maybe. I see. Tell me about the title. You know, I'm someone who I really love titles. Um, I love them as either sort of flair of language sometimes or mm-hmm. the way they sort of tease in a mysterious way what's to come or even ways that the titles evade and, and um, sort of hide in the body of the text. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I, I mean, it was the first thing I noticed, of course, other than your name on the collection, was the title, The Math of St. Felix. And so I wanted to just ask you about that title, you know, walk me through it, you know, where did it come from? And also like, where, what do you want it to do for us as readers? Right. Where do you want it to take us? I mean, it certainly intrigued me, you know, and I thought like <laughs> Saint, Felix, math, you know, right. uh, calculation. That's interesting. You said puzzle pieces, right? Geometry. Yeah. Um, uh, but also transcendence and spirit and mystery. But, yeah. Or, you know, where does it come from? And so where do you want it to take us? You know, I'm smiling because I have to make a disclaimer. I can barely do math. Like, I can barely calculate a tip on a restaurant bill. I'm terrible Uh at math. I feel like I conked out on math, like, my junior year of high school in a bad trigonometry class. So Uh, while I appreciate mathematics and mathematicians, it is not my ministry. (laughs) I firmly believe in and I'm really attracted to systems of organization and Mm -hmm. I like seeing 
maybe the operations of things, like orders of operation are very important to me. I think part of it is that I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school from pre-K to uh, 12th grade. Um, Uh And, you know, your whole, your entire uh, life as a student is predicated around these uh, rituals of worship, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, Catholic schools in Brooklyn in the 90s and early aughts, it's not like we're saying prayers all day, but you are taking these religion classes. You are going to mass as a school. Like you are doing these rituals of starting uh, your days with prayer. And I think the routine and the rehearsal of that, it really kind of got into me this feeling of, okay, what are the order of operations in my daily life practices and also Mm -hmm. understanding maybe the trap of that because like I think I grew up in a time where you didn't question things like that and I also Mm -hmm. think about being a person living in the U.S. right like uh, growing up in the United States and there were things I did as a kid in relation to being a citizen to this country that were about rote memorization and routine Uh right like you know um oh my gosh what do you call the thing that you do with the flag? I don't even remember now. Where you like put your hand across your Oh, heart. the Pledge of Allegiance. Yes, the Pledge yes. of Allegiance. Oh my God, it's been a while. They're going to like revoke my citizenship. But you know, that like we used to start the <laughs> day with that. We used to do the Pledge of Allegiance and then we would say um, a Hail Mary and then we would say, good morning, so-and-so teacher. And the teacher mm. would say good morning to us. And that's the kind of order of operations that I just my life is founded on. It's founded on knowing the steps and knowing what's going to come next. And so I think that was my attraction to this, this feeling of math that like, even if I don't know what to do, there is always a system that is operating for better or for worse. I think there's Uh maybe a flip in the title there. Um, And, you know, I was all, it's funny. I came to the title pretty like way before the book was done. That's often how I work. Even if I'm working on a play, I usually come up with the title maybe after I write the first scene or even before I start writing it. And then I write in the direction of yeah. the title. I sort of name I the I start thing. with titles for what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> I like titles. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I don't know. It makes you feel like you are, you have bestowed something upon something, right? Like that this is what it is. And mm-hmm. now every day in my practice of writing, I get to arrive at this thing that has already been called into being somehow. Maybe it's like a good mm-hmm. wish or something. It feels like a good omen that if it, if I already know who it is, then every day I'm just meeting it again and I can keep writing toward it. And uh, yeah, well, I, I just, I, if I can interrupt you real quick, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah. not, you're not drawing on your Catholic education. I went to Jesuit college. That's consecration, right? You consecrate the task. <laughs> right. right? It's yeah, a that, I, it's, that's actually exactly what it is. It's a blessing. Yeah. I think... Oh man, that yes, uh, the Jesuits every time. <laughs> but it's I, true. I grew up non-religious, but I loved my Jesuit education. Yeah, so. it is a blessing. It's and it's sort of you know I, I think of like Lucille Clifton or something like blessing the boats. It is blessing this this thing, and then kind of mm-hmm. arriving to it again and again. And by the time. I was kind of just starting to like work out these poems. I remember talking to a friend and saying, you know, I'm working on this thing. And I wasn't thinking about getting published at the time, but I I said to her, you know, I'm going to call it the math of St. Felix. Felix is my mom's last name. 
Um, And I think I was, I think the thing with the word saint, maybe I was thinking about that blessing. I think I was trying to wrap my head around what it meant to sort of behold the life of this woman. And then as I'm, you know, thinking about her life, I'm thinking about the lives of her sisters and my birth mother died uh, when I was a baby. And so my aunt mom, my aunt is my second mom who raised me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so thinking about these women and really wanting to consider them as women beyond what they had become to me in my family, which were, you know, these mothers, right, that you sort of like are, are a bit distant from you in a way. And it made me think of saints, right, the way that they are venerated and the way that even though when I was a kid, I learned about the lives of saints and you always learn about their lives as, you know, simple, humble people before they become a saint. But then when mm-hmm. you pray to the saint, you're never thinking about that just regular person, right? You're never thinking about just Therese in the middle of France, minding her business as a young girl. Like you're never thinking about, you know, Paul just hanging out. Like you you think about them on this pedestal. Yeah. And I was really trying to interrupt that in my own grief process of like, how do I mourn my mom? How do I mourn my mothers while allowing them to still be the women and maybe the girls that they were because it's part of the way in which their lives were also taken away is that they never got to just be girls. They never got to just be women. Like it was always this like really heavy burden that they were Mm -hmm. rolling with to be these figures in a family, in a society and, and how that wore on them until their bodies wore, wore out. Rehearsal and I am the ledger who carries the stone, and the stone is the book written in violet ink, and the book is a gathering of things complete in themselves, and the book gathers imaginations, and imaginations radiate, and the imaginary is a root of another side of yourself, and imaginaries take shape. Etched in the ledger are sundials and the lunar calendars of people becoming and fading, waxing and waning, turning to and turning away from. Watch how they grow large in the violet sky. Watch when they decrease in illumination. I am the learning ledger. My mother's hands are their own and each other's and my sister's and mine decreasing in live illumination, only to grow larger in reflected imaginaries. A play is only an accident of rehearsal, and rehearsal is always a practice. So, um, let me. Uh, so now we've gone from sort of the the origins of the book to the to the title. So we're not quite into the poems because I actually wanted to ask you about the inside of the jacket. Yeah, um, and, and and this might be um, two things about the inside of the jacket. First, uh, I wanted to ask about the words um, where there's a characterization of you, which I hadn't read until I'd read through the collection. And then I read it and I, I really loved it, but I wanted to ask you, you know, which, uh, how it resonates for you, 
where it, it describes your your voice as a poet as weary prophet. I thought weary prophet was a really interesting phrase, especially given what you had just what you were just saying in terms of you know what what it, what it meant to arrive at this moment of a, of emotional exhaustion and loss, right? Mm-hmm. But also to speak in a way that's not simply mourning, but also something else, a prophet. And then it, the book itself is characterized with these three words: elegy, ledger, and legacy. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just sort of take me through these characterizations and what they mean to you as a writer. Yeah, you know, it's funny, book jackets and bios and, you know, blurbs are strange things. They sort of feel like they come after the book is done. Mm -hmm. They're part of a kind of marketing process. But this is something that I feel like is true. They were, you know, that description was written by my editor, Anne DeMarkin, who is one of the um, team members of the Third Thing Press. And we had a really intense it didn't feel intense. I mean, it was actually a really lovely process, but it was really intensely intimate of putting the book together. And Uh I think what was happening, we would meet every week and, you know, I was also updating her on what was happening in my life. And this is a book that got written over uh, quarantine. And so we would have these meetings, but we were also reporting to each other about what was happening in our respective environments. Um, sure. She lives in Washington. I live in Brooklyn. And I was reporting to her about the state of things in New York at the time. I was p- reporting to her about the state of my family. And she often remarked, like, how how much reporting I was doing, like how it, she was sort of confused as to how it could be possible that I could just kind of list, you know, all of these losses or mm-hmm. like all of these thing, these incredible sort of tragedies or catastrophes that were going on and yet still turn my attention to the word or turn my attention to the page. And uh-huh. it's because I'm always also looking to the future and I really believe in that. Like, I truly believe in, like, living a life. Like, I really want to live Mm -hmm. a life. I really want to live my life. And, like, I think there's something about reporting on what's going on while also really holding in your hand, like, a pearl of, like, what could possibly be, even though Mm -hmm. in the moment it doesn't look like that could happen at all. And so there Mm -hmm. is a tiredness of it, right? Like, how many times am I going to go over this again? How many times am I going to have to pick up the phone and tell somebody that somebody else has died? Um, But there's also, like, an insistence. And I think that's what she she was getting at. And so I Mm -hmm. take, you know, I'm... I have a big family and I'm really only one of the few who kind of took a creative, a creative lean. It's funny. My father used to write poems, which I didn't learn until a few years ago. Um, But part of that creativity is not just because like I'm out on my own Island trying to be like, Mm -hmm. ooh la la Mm -hmm. Diane. Like it really is. This is how I know to record these lives and somebody has Uh. to do it. I think I really take that seriously. Like somebody must do it. Um, yeah, mm. lest, lest we sort of didn't exist at all. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's interesting just what that, that last bit that you said and the way it picks up this like elegy ledger legacy, you know, trio that, 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 you know, it's a characterization of the book. And I mean, it just uh, it reminds me of this part of, of Patrick Shamoso's school days. And I've, quoted it a number of times in my my writing about you know the the 
the character is written in the first person, um, that he writes against genocide. Like he writes mm-hmm. his name out over and over. And there's a sense of like le- the ledger not being a bureaucratic document, the ledger being yeah. like a form of praise that he was writing his Creole name, right? Uh, but also uh, making sure that that legacy doesn't die, that it is legacy, right? That it is something that can be as weary as it is still oriented towards the future, right? That sense of prophecy. And I hadn't thought those two things together, but just as you as you were talking, I, um, I mean, I try so often to bring things back to that Shamaso quotation because I just, or passage from school days, because I, I, I love it, but it, it resonates, I think, really well with the way uh, that description, and it does capture something really uh, central about about the, the poetry collection, is, is about uh, making sure that, in the midst of death, things don't die. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up the Shamazo because now I'm thinking about um, uh, the Creolite in Praise of Creolness. Which, what yeah. is the title of that book? Um, yeah, it's, it's in Praise of Creolness or Elegy for Creolness. Yeah, exactly. And thinking about, you know, my family's from Haiti and so uh, Creole is a very oral language. I mean, now it's mm-hmm. written down. It's like the official language. It's what they're learning in school these days. But my mom's whole generation, like they were writing in French. And when they moved to the States, we're writing in English, but they spoke Creole. Like, And, you know, we mm-hmm. would speak English sometimes at home, but it was really a, a mishmash of both. But every story, I mean, just remember growing up and feeling like, okay, first of all, these stories are crazy. Like all of you people in this family are totally bonkers, wild people. I can't believe y'all all got here like this. Um, <laughs> and, and also so many of you, just like how many people can be in a sort of first, you know, cousin situation. Um, but feeling like the orality, I just remember feeling like, ah, I like I need to get this down that like there's something in like the laughing right like the the sighing in between stories like those those sounds that make up the the gossip that make up the rumor mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I ne- I never wanted to lose any of that and so it's part of why I write because like if I can just kind of catch some of that stuff out in out of the air then I can actually turn what legacy is, right? So that it stops being mm-hmm. about documentation. It stops being about like a legal birth certificate, a death certificate, mm-hmm. a social security card, like these things that you look at them, they don't quite add up. And then it can be about that story that my mom told me about getting off of the plane and going to the wrong 53rd street or that story about, mm-hmm. you know, um, Go, having to go pick up some water in a bucket and uh, coming back, but she gets into a fight with a girl and then she has to go home and explain why there's no water, right? Like you can't, that will not be in a document. And I think mm-hmm. that's where legacies are, is like the, that stuff that is not do- in, in in sort of like legal or bureaucratic documentation. It's not in the documents of the state. And mm-hmm. Like I just, that's really important to me to be able to like hold those things and and reflect them back somehow. Yeah, and you reflect them back in your own voice, uh, but also I think like, and we'll have a chance to get into this a little bit more. But it, you know, one of the things I love about the voice of of the poems is that it 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 has that sense of of reportage, while also a lot of very deep. Uh, 
poetic indulgence and embellishment, which I think that, that's how you show that's how you show love, right? Is by being yourself, but also yeah. deferring to the other. Yeah. And, and, the, and just thinking it's still now of the cover, you know, the cover title, the the sort of fold with the, the dust jacket, with the characterization, and then the inside of the cover that bookends uh, two photographs, which um, I was so drawn in by the photographs. And I hope every anyone who listens buys the book just to see the photographs. Um, it took me a while to even read because I was just really taken in by the photographs there. Um vernacular in the sense of these are not mm. um, you know studio productions um <laughs> right. they they're everyday photographs but they're very profound um they're really beautiful they are clearly saturated with memory which i find really interesting the way they communicate their saturation with memory while also being and, and in that way also uh, simultaneously being intimate but also opaque right it's like what is this but i also feel very close to something yeah. And so to, I, I'll just invite you, however you want to, to talk about those photographs and really just why why would you put them as ways of bookending the, book, the collection? Oh, I love those photos. Well, first of all, my mothers have never taken a bad picture in their in both of their lifetimes. It's incredible. <laughs> if you look at the family album, it's like all hits, no bad pictures. It's insane. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I was not graced <laughs> with those talents, those jeans. I don't know what if it was the the camera. I don't know what's going on, but those two photos in particular, and they're not from the same exact time, right? Like they, these are are not two photos that were taken the same day. But I don't know. I they stick out to me so much, and to hold them in my hand is that feeling that you're talking about. It's like this incredible intimacy, and you don't quite know why you're drawn in because it's just these two young women sitting in chairs, sitting in chairs in different ways. Possibly, maybe there's something in the eyes. But I remember during the writing process, I had a very large bout of writer's block. This is not a thing that panics me. I I don't know. Life has a lot of things going on. If I can't write mm-hmm. for a while, it's really not the worst thing in the world. But I had gotten through a first draft of the book and then spent three months not writing anything. <laughs> I was uh-huh. doing everything else. I was mopping my floors. I was like fixing the grout in the kitchen, <laughs> like anything other than writing. <laughs> and I couldn't, I didn't know what the book needed other than these copy edits that I, you know, had made um, a few months prior. And I sat down one day and I just looked at these photos and I started crying uncontrollably. And I didn't know why. I just realized that I had, I really missed these women and I missed their missed opportunity to just be women. And I started doing a kind of ekphrasis exercise, which is, you know, ekphrasis is a, a, a kind of form of poetry where you write a poem um, sort of inspired by another work of art. And so it's a lot about um, deep observation. It's about mm-hmm. sitting with something, right? Beholding something and mm-hmm. then uh, translating that into language. And I do a lot of ekphrasis with um, images because, uh 
visual work is just really important to my craft. And so I just did some really plain descriptions of those pictures, just naming mm-hmm. objects in the background, uh, describing the color of their of their dresses. And then these poems started coming out of it. And so the the middle section of the book, which is called Saint, is is a basically an elongated ephrasis of those two photos and then maybe two or three more. And mm. that was the last section of the book that I wrote. And it kind of almost goes unedited. Like I wrote that in one long shot. I cried the whole time writing it and I handed it off to my editor <laughs> and she was like, yeah, yeah, okay, this is it. Like this is actually wow. the the thing that the book was missing and now we're done. And now let's just like go through and, um, and, you know, kind of wrangle it together. But I didn't write anything new after that. That was the last new thing I wrote. And I think for me, what I love about those photos and having it in the, you know, kind of book and the book like that is because I want readers to do the thing that I have been doing for years, which is trying to behold these women and knowing uh. that there is something that I cannot describe that is going on with them. And that might mean something for how I'm living my life. There's just something that you cannot know about those mm-hmm. photos. And I don't know why that is. I, I like, I don't know. They're just photographs, but they're, like, there's a combination of whether it's the color, whether it's their gazes, it feels like a secret is being held. And I mm-hmm. just am spending my whole life trying to figure out what that secret is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think aesthetically, you know, my my own sort of encounter with the photographs and, and it sounds very much like what you're saying is, you know, so many photographs, especially wonderful and beautiful photographs, the camera really dominates the the subject, right? And that's that's where you get really interested in the art of the photograph. But it's inverted here where the women are absolutely dominating the camera. They, they, they're completely unbeholden to the camera while also being totally inside the frame. It's not a gesture that goes <laughs> right. outside the frame. They're inside the frame and they dominate the camera. And there's something, um, you know, really amazing about that because it, it does have that intimacy, but it's also like we can't imagine ourselves into the camera yes. because the camera is not the thing that is telling us this story. Um, and in that way, they I I do think the 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 photographs uh, walk us in and out of and back into the collection. I mean, I felt mm-hmm. like that when I when I saw it, when I looked at both of them, and then I read. I felt like my reading was um, sort of watched by those photographs. And then when mm-hmm. I got done, I think the you know turning the page and seeing the 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 the. Um, back end or whatever. I don't know if it's verso or recto. I never know which is which, but the, <laughs> you know, the, the last page bookend of photograph sort of pushes you back to read again. Mm. I really think there is something like, you know, the, the poetry, you know, and I want to ask you about the style in a, in a moment here, but I think the, the part of what's so interesting about the poetry is it's intimacy and opacity at the same time, which is like the photographs, but then it was like the opacity of these photographs really make you go back and say, whatever you think you learned, there's a lot you didn't learn. So you've got to go reread. Right. I don't know if this was your design you know, vision, but I think it, it, in that way, the photographs and the poetry aren't that different. That is, wow, that's really wonderful to hear. I mean, now that you say that, I want to say, yes, that's what I meant the entire time. But I actually... <laughs> 
I had some reservations about including the photos at all. And when I wrote that section and I was telling Anne, you know, I worked with these photos. I was trying to practice some ekphrasis here. Uh, she was so into it. And she was really um, gentle with the, the ask that she made. And she was like, I know these are our family photos. I know how much care you're trying to take of these people. And I don't want to just sort of splay right their their images just without regard because there's there's also a thing about sort of capture and mm, um, sure. you know how an image can uh you can lose grip of it once it's just out in the world and i i take that very seriously as i write about my family it's very intimate work and i don't ever want to just leave them hanging out there right like i don't want to mm-hmm. make assumptions about these people i don't I don't want to sort of put them up for fodder in order to just write a book. Sure. And so I did at first, I was a little nervous about having their full faces in the book. Um, it's part of why the section breaks are are with these images that are clipped because there was something that I was wanting to keep away or maybe to keep to, keep to myself yeah. and my family yeah. and not sort of just like totally offer out. So there is this thing about like a kind of transparency and opacity working with like in the book itself. Um, but when she showed me the mock-up, I couldn't say no because it's exactly like you said, I felt like these two young women, and it's very uh, pointed that they're not, totally adults, right? Like they're teenagers in those photos. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so you have these two young women holding holding this book up like quite quite literally. And I couldn't not do it. Um I don't know. I found myself thinking a lot about uh Wayward Lives. I, I like I was thinking a lot about Sadia Hartman's work and how uh-huh. that book works works with images as well and uh-huh. what happens when you go into the archive. I'm constantly digging into my family archives. And the care that you need to take and it's not always as easy as you think it is like it's not just about telling a nice story about your moms like it's a, mm-hmm. it's about telling yeah. the truth and then it's about figuring out okay what truth am i trying to write through and offer in poems and indulge and all of that mm-hmm. stuff and what do i learn that nobody else needs to know like there were several things that i learned throughout this process that i really had to keep for myself sure. um and I think the work with the images is really like telltale of that, of like what, you know, what I wanted to offer out and be generous with and what I had to say, mm-hmm. no, actually, this is, this is not for you. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just find the composition process, you know, whether it's an academic book or, or a, a creative book to be so revealing because, um, you know, it's a, it's a human endeavor. And I think that the, emphasis on sort of final product and sort of what does it look like and even thinking of it as a product is is um it's not the event of of the text and i think these photographs really remind us that and that's part of why i started with these kinds of questions with you is um because i feel like the you know the collection and just the physical book itself is trying to make sure that we don't separate the end product from process or even exactly. think of it as our product. So let me ask you about the poems themselves. I mean, one of the things that really struck me, and it was, and I mean this in a, in a, a really positive and beautiful way, but it's uh, a, can be a really disorienting read at mm. the level of style. 
And that's because there's no way as a reader to get into a rhythm of reading. And I, that, that, that to me was an interesting readerly experience, right? Because some of it is, uh, are short snippets of a world, right? Some are right. long meditations. There are lists, right? Sometimes they're lists of things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're lists of characterizations. Sometimes they're lists of kinds of mourning. Um, you have prose that can be really mundane and really interesting. Uh, some of it's playful. Some of it's devastatingly sad. And a number of the poems, like, well, you know, obviously it, it's poetry and that sort of tradition of sung speech, you know, it has to be heard even as you're reading. But some of it has to be read on the page because the the the, the words are scattered and fragmented and sort of adrift across uh, the pages, sometimes multiple pages or sometimes just on one page. And I felt like in some ways the style sort of embodied this weary prophecy, right? The weariness is like there's no one sort of place that right. we can sort of draw everything from. But I was just wanted to ask you, like, how do you how do you characterize your style as a poet and and the poetic composition in this book? given that it's such a constellation of styles. And I say constellation, I just want to say uh, real quick, I say constellation uh, here intentionally because the way a constellation works, like in, in you know, stars, is somebody has to point out the way it, it makes a, a mm-hmm. shape, right? Yeah. Point out that's a bull, that's a scorpion, or, you know, whatever the constellation is. Um, but it sort of lays there hidden with the scattering of stars, and for me, there's a constellation kind of experience reading of, of all of these different stars, all of these different ways of, of, of reckoning with, with memory and loss and future. But it also has an overall shape. And rather than characterize that overall shape myself, I want to ask you, you know, how do you think of your style and what is the constellation uh, that's working here? Yeah, well tend to say, and this is not being um, super humble or self-effacing, but I really mean this. I don't know how to write a poem in certain ways. What I do know how to write is an event. And that is for me what the act of poetry is, right? It's about the, it's about these encounters and it's about what is the emergency of the word. And I could have written a collection that felt like a more formal, perhaps more traditional or conventional mm-hmm. um, collection. There are wonderful, like if I think of Sharon Olds, um Forrest Gander or Louise Gluck, Forrest Gander has this beautiful collection um, called Be With that he published uh, after his wife C.D. Wright died. And those are grief poems, but they are very much a poet's collection of poetry. Um, And I, for me, I think because I write for performance, what my mind is always attuned to is what is the event of this thing? What am I trying to gather people around? And what am I trying to meet people with like what is the meeting Mm, point where mm -hmm. am I trying to get people to meet and so the writing or how I would describe it if you're talking about sort of styles it's really a rehearsal I'm trying to rehearse all of these different strategies different tactics of getting through grief 
right? And part of the uh-huh. test that I've given myself is like, maybe I can work on this grief if I really just sort of sit down and consider these women's lives. And then to consider their lives, I have to think about my family's life. And to think about my family's life, I have to think about my family's lives. And to think about their lives, I have to then think about my life. And to think about mm. my life, I have to think about these new collect, uh, connections that are happening in my life. And all I could have done something else where I use that as content or material and just write about it. But the way my brain works is that that all of that becomes rehearsal. And so I know all of that. I know like, okay, these are the things that I'm trying to do. And all I have to do now is rehearse them. I just have to keep mm-hmm. trying them. I just have to keep practicing them. And so mm-hmm. that's why the the writing comes out as it does. And like I think when you talk about constellation, yeah, like through all of that rehearsal, which for me is very rigorous, like it's I think what is really happening is writing. Like I I'm not gonna lie about that. Like I, I really wrote a lot out of those poems. Um But then we can meet after the exhaustion and I can point out to you, okay, well, for me, that was the big bear, but what's, what, what, what are you seeing? Or for me, that's, you know, Uh, the, what, the spoon, I I didn't learn anything in school. The big dipper. (laughs) The big dipper. So I looked I up constellations recently <laughs> to figure out which ones which ones I actually knew and which ones I just invented. I'm not sure there's a scorpion actually, but <laughs> but yeah, there's a, like I know all the parts of this book. Like I I know how they're working for me. I I mm-hmm. see what I was rehearsing, and to me, it's very plain and sometimes a little mundane or boring. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what was going on there for me. Um, but but I can let go of that at the point that I am now. I think going through the process of writing is what's important to me. And so whatever ends up happening as a result, I sort of, I want to offer out to the reader to kind of make sense of for them, for themselves, but it's a process. It's really a process forward thing. And so Mm. if I do nothing else, having gone through the process of poeming, so poeming as a verb is the thing that I'm really, really after. And then what comes out, for me, I can call poetry because like that was the act of what I was doing, right? Like uh, really the action verb of what I was doing, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying that I'm going to sit down and write a poetry collection. People do that wonderfully. I am I am not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 and, and. And, and I know my first mother from my second mother. I can tell by where I see their hands, in photos and memory. My first mother's hands rest gently on the arms of a wooden chair, her legs crossed under the skirt of a tightly pleated fuchsia dress, a white flower in her hair. My second mother's hands cover mine as she tells me that she likes my nail polish, for a moment wrapping her fingers around my fingers. My first mother's hands caress the fronds outside a building whose location is now lost to sepia. My second mother's hands braid my hair down my back, a salmon-colored tongue jutting out from her lips, open in concentration. When I look at my mother's hands in photos, I picture mommy's hands from what I remember. Imagine and recall, 
recall to imagine. My mother's hands are their own and each other's. So one of the so when I'm thinking about the you know that characterization you just had, I, I this is more of an aside, but um, you know the way you were describing that, I wondered about the uh, about your sort of uh, imagination of 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 what or not imagination but your your strategy in terms of of you know making this poetry sort of in between all these spaces about family self and reader and um all the multiple things in between it actually kind of sounded like marking out parts of a stage Mm. I wonder if you're like a playwright poet that way, right? Yeah. It's like trying to figure out like, you know, you're going to come stand here, but of course what it means for you to stand here is going to be something more than something I could control. But yeah, um, but I, I, that's a really interesting uh, to hear you talk about that. um, You know, that mixture of styles coming from um, not knowing how to write poems as that, you know, as anything other than, than this, this constellation of styles. And in that way, you know, both in terms of the content of the poems and sort of affective uh, dimensions of it, um, but also the, just the styles, as I was saying, the way it's, you know, there's prose that's short, there are lists, there are long prose, there are long poetic pieces, there are words that have to be seen on the page mm-hmm. where you're sort of puzzling. One of the things that it did remind me of, and, and in some ways this is indulging, you know, ways we've worked together in the past uh, uh, in Caribbean literature and theory, it did remind me very much of of Edouard Glissant's notion of relation, mm. and also his the function of opacity in his work, which he always talks about as you know. Opacity is not the opposite of contact or communication. Right. What it is, is it's a protective withdrawal where certain kinds of vulnerability are held while others are given, right? Yeah. In order for there to be poetic connection, but also the the dignity and integrity of, of vulnerable peoples or, or, or memories. And but the styles also work that way, right? The way they interrupt each other, the way that that chaos and relation in, in Glissant's work are not just sort of uh, harmonious moments, but they're also moments of that jolt you and shift you and change you and throw you off balance in really productive ways. And I thought just visually, there's so much of that. There is so much in the sound of the poetry that is that relation and, and chaos. And also, as you've already really been talking about, that that play of opacity, of, of revealing but holding back at the same time. So I was just wondering, you know, how much how much you think about somebody like Glissant in whether it's, it's, it's your writerly practice or just in the aims of what you want to do in bringing family and and person to the page. Yeah. I think about Glissant all the time. I, I think that's always the, um, it's really the fulcrum of my work is like trying to, is trying to dial that opacity and it's not being opaque for the sake of being opaque, right? Like it's not about hiding things uh, to be mysterious. It's not about, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of hiding things away or creating a screen in terms of of aesthetic. It is, I'm going to return to that image of the stage that you provided. Opacity for me as a writer of performance is about 
there's an audience and there's a stage. And sometimes what I'm doing is turning to the audience and addressing the audience. But sometimes what I have to do is actually turn my back to the audience and take care of the people on stage. Mm -hmm. And when I think of this book, it's really my family on stage. And I am trying to figure out, okay, who's upstage left? What year do you sort of come downstage center? Mm -hmm. Like, where are you over here? What's going on with this little choreography or composition over here? And there are Mm -hmm. moments where I cannot... I cannot be talking to the audience at the same time. And that for me is the opacity, right? It's taking, it's it's also about care and it's about when these sort of like uh, um, gestures of vulnerability, when they are for which parties, at least for me. Um, and so that is, that feels like a, a feeling, right? That's like almost mm-hmm. like a, an intention or a kind of value that I write with. Yeah. When it comes to the relation, I mean, beyond it being about relations, just like quite thematically, like, right? Like it's mm-hmm. about these people you're related to. I think the words on the page, it's a very visual book for me. Like well, there are lots Absolutely. of this that I am not actually interested in reading out loud. It is about this physical encounter with these words in relation to each other on the page in ways that I'm not interested in making sense of so that they can just Mm -hmm. do what they need to do on their own. And I think that's the other thing about relation, that it's not about your control, right? That if I am able to put two uh, two next to each other, and I'll say two, because right, it could be two things, it could do, be two people, two elements, or whatever, two creatures, mm-hmm. that I th- I don't then control their interaction. And so, especially towards the end of the book, when every, like the language just starts to fall apart, I think it returns to that weariness, right? That weary prophet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a good prophet is always at least going to put the things in relation to each other. So even yeah. as, if at that point I can't quite make sense, I know enough to put them next to each other. And maybe it's not now, maybe it's like a few years from now where some sense uh, kind of arises for me mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. not quite there in the moment. But at least I just, you know, covered my bases by putting them in relation. And I feel like that's such an, I don't know, that's such a generous thing to me, right? To then not try to control the means, to not control yeah. the dance, to just like let it do what it needs to do. Um, because it's not for me to say like it's, and I also can't cause I'm tired because I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's what it means to write from a place of intimacy. I think is that, that those hesitations aren't just ethical. They're also emotional. Yeah. Spiritual. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, you know, the, the you know, the, the last little bit of what you said as all of that was just really brilliant. I'm, I'm glad I asked. But one of the things that the you know also came to mind in this sort of um, you know collage constellation of of, of styles, and I, I, it's worth mentioning for people who haven't seen the physical book, even the title, you know, the is backwards and upside down. Mm-hmm. Math is rightwards up but backwards, um, and of Saint Felix, um, and uh, you know, sort of left to right, uh, right side up prose. So even just as before you even open it, 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 it is experimenting with, with spatial organization. But the, the mixture of styles and spatial organization and the way, you know, as you say, this couldn't be an audio book, right? Because yeah. people have to look at the page and find their way. And by the way, I love the non-imperial nature of the way you articulated that. It's like, 
you know, it's like you're not trying to control the reader in relation to it. Um, while, you know, that's also, that's an invitation in, but also, of course, that moment of opacity, but also reminded me of another person who I know is, has been, uh, important for your own thinking and, and somebody we work together on, uh, Wilson Harris and his real rejection of the capacity of something yeah. like epic, of allegory, these sort of one-dimensional frames that dominate sort of the white European tradition. And for him, we, you know, there, there's has to be like a creolization of these frames, yeah. which is to put these things in relation to each other. So they dissemble each other, but also create new forms or even just uh, massive juxtapositions that, that, that don't get reconciled. Um, and for him, right. It's about, the inc- inability of those white European frames of writing to tell the story of the black Americas. But also it reminds me of something you said about that idea of like sort of seizure or capture that you try to avoid. Um, and that also for him is the rejection of things like myth and, and yeah. affiliation is to try to like, not as, as a writer of identity of a writer of memory, Wilson Harris doesn't want to repeat those colonial impulses towards domination and control. And so I was, you know, that was another thing that came to mind, both in what you were saying, but also in reading the, the, the constellation of styles in the book. Am, am I onto something here? Or is this again, just going back to Creole imagination <laughs> and, and, and superimposing? No, totally. That I feel, I feel like the Creole imagination is my playbook. I, it's funny. I think, I think when I encountered these, um, you know, ideas from Wilson Harris, from Glissant, from Chamazo, right? Like Lorna Goodison, like all of these like poets and writers um, deeply, deeply thinking about considering the, the Caribbean and also thinking about their lives as writers, as people who are committed to the word. It's one thing to study it and be like, yeah, I like I rock with this. This makes a lot of sense. It, mm-hmm. It's another thing to then be in a situation that calls for you to take a position on that. And uh, what I mean by that is that what Wilson Harris is, is uh, what Wilson ha- Harris is saying about being careful about falling into these traps, these these traps of genre, and those traps of genre leading into an abyss that you sort of can't quite climb out of. Mm-hmm. I have to be really careful about that. Like, you know, I am a Black woman writing and making theater, and there is, like, an appetite for Black uh, pain for black grief like there is a mm-hmm. real people want these stories and yeah. there is something so insidious and something so uh gross i'll just like use that word about mm-hmm. the ways in which some of these narratives are consumed and i want i had to be careful about what i was doing when i wrote this book that i didn't just fall into a trap of another black girl without parents or another mm-hmm. black family that's just lost a bunch of people and how sad and how personal, right? Because that's also the thing with these narratives is that because they are so personal, you you get to sort of like not look at these sort of bigger things at hand, right? Like these sort of like structural reasons as to, well, why is there so much loss in this family? Like what could possibly mm-hmm. be going on? Um, 
you know, why are they losing so many people in an anti-Black world? You don't get to have that discussion because you get stuck on sad. Like, oh, how sad. Like, oh, how beautiful. Um, and for me, the the sort of quickest or maybe the most surefire way to not fall into that trap is to not get, uh, bun- like, you know, sort of hunkered down in one genre. That if the thing is always running away from me by getting into these different forms of writing, then I can always be looking after it and I don't get sort of comfortable uh, in one seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a way in which the work, the, the work is away from me as well, because I, because like, I'm also, I'm also sort of trying to uh, not chase it, but I would say like, maybe like look after it or walk after it. Like it's ahead of me in some ways. Um and, you know, I, I guess I'm also responding to the market, too. Like, there is a, I, I feel a little, um, it, this is tricky to say, right? Because there's, like, so much amazing writing out there. But I feel like there are Black writers, Indigenous writers, writers of color, who know what the game is and know, yeah. like, I, right, that, like, the quicker you can, like, dial up these, like, white audience tears or even white audience rage or right that the more you're Mm -hmm. addressing a kind of like uh you know after the enlightenment audience right the more you do that the more you center them in your work or even the in the address of your work the more more Mm -hmm. you make it clear that they are your audience the more legible you become and the quicker those deals come in and i I just don't like that. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a real danger to a hyper legibility, and again, that raises questions for me of how am I caring about these people that I'm writing about because they are and were and continue to be real people, and I cannot use them in that way. And mm-hmm. I think maybe working against a kind of legibility is something that I just, I like, I have to do, like, I, like I need to do it. Um, and I think there are, there are a lot of p- uh, parts in the book that don't like are not trying to be legible at all. Like there are very local things. Mm-hmm. Like there's like an ice cream shop that nobody else knows about. I was, mm-hmm. You know, my partner was like, uh, you know, how is somebody supposed to know about taste the tropics and, you know, the Guinness flavor. And I just had to say, that is not my concern. My concern Mm -hmm. is for like who that is legible to. And maybe they can have the rest of the book, but they don't have that moment. And they're going to have to figure out a way to be okay okay with that. And I think an audience or or a reader that is willing to to do that is is a reader that I'm willing to engage with because it's not about, quite frankly, it's not about, them like it's about like how they're also being generous in the taking up of this book and that there is Mm -hmm. also a work required as a reader to show up to somebody else's house Mm -hmm. i really like that that's a i think uh, first of all i think it's it's something that actually really happens in the book but i really love it as a as a an ethic of the of the composition itself to um to demand something of the reader that's ethical right <laughs> to read to read without imperialism which is very difficult yeah. um because i do think our our reading habits are imperial i mean again to just thinking of glissant i mean you know he really resists the 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 term comprehend right comprendre mm-hmm. right because he says it's it has as its component part prendre 
right, to seize. Yes. And he has some line, I should, I should actually have the exact wording committed to memories, but he's like, for some of us in the global empire, <laughs> to be seized has a special meaning. So some sort of like, you know, sort of wink but of melancholy, really. Um, <laughs> right. But he's like, you know, you know, that, that his argument for opacity is in some ways exactly that. It's like, um, it's not only for us to protect, but in order to actually draw something different out of the reader. And um, uh, But that's, you know, for him, that's a poetics, that's an essay, but uh, you practice it. It's really pretty amazing that way, I have to say. Well, I think part of it too is I'm also well aware of, <laughs> just how I have been in this world. Like I have been imperially educated, right? You know, like I, I went to these schools, <laughs> like got these, like got this master's degree. I can't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that there's not a way in which imperialism is in my hand. Mm-hmm. And I think I felt that very much, you know, being raised by my mom and being in my family, right? That, the imperialism comes out in ways that you don't even realize as a person in it, right? It's like suddenly like, mm-hmm. oh, like sort of making suggestions as to how something should be or making translations as to, you know, you know, what is the proper English for this? Or like, when are we, I, I make a joke that we really speak the Queen's English in my household, but you know, my partner are two people who just went to these schools. Like we were just sort of raised in these ways that were about uh, always kind of negotiating and assimilation. Um, And, you know, my sort of trajectory over the last uh, five, six, seven years was really about coming home. It's about like Hmm. going off to these institutions, but then I don't know, just like not getting untethered in a really dangerous way. And the the older that I got, the more my mom was concerned about that, was like how much these opportunities for success, for, uh, you know, career, education, like how much that was important for us as people who grew up uh, without any money, but also the danger and how much I would come back a stranger and maybe mm-hmm. perhaps a fear that I would not come back at all. And I think after she died, that was like a real, like I got smacked in the face with that return home. And like, it was yeah. really, you know, when you talk about that math, that was part of it that like between, I have two sisters and between the three of us, there was no amount of being competent. There was no, there were no number of degrees. They were both in graduate programs at the time. Uh, There were no amount of degrees. There were not any, you know, diplomas we could hand to the doctors to say, my mom needs to live. Like there was a way in which even the math of having raised us so that something like this didn't happen, Mm. even that wasn't enough. And this feeling of like, Oh my God, like what, when is it ever enough? And Mm -hmm. these incalculable losses, they are truly incalculable and there is no amount of work you can do to protect from them. And there's, again, I think I'm thinking about like the kind of life I had like growing up. That's really what you hear. Like you have these immigrant, you know, your children of immigrants and the idea is like, okay, but your parents came to America for a reason. And so you really got to do the math on this. Like you really mm, got to put yeah. some numbers together so that you have quadrupled on the investment that they've made. Mm. And there are several ways in which that didn't pan out for us. Like in real flesh, 
like fleshy ways. Like there are just bodies uh-huh. that are that don't that are not living anymore, that are not right, that are sort of not breathing. People are that are not sort of here and breathing. And I guess I wanted to figure out the math on that too. And maybe it's like a really unsatisfying that there is for all the real numbers, for all the rational numbers or even irrational numbers, right? For all the integers, that there's never an answer that that is gonna be satisfying. <laughs> So on that sort of homecoming, you know, coming home, um, I want to, it's, it's sort of uh, segues really nicely into this passage that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and it, it's interesting because I, I typed it out because I wanted to, to, to read it. But it was also, I think there's something really interesting about someone reading it who's not you. I mean, I'm going to read it, but yeah. you know, part, of the, part of the intimacy <laughs> of the poem is I think it makes, of the poetry, I think makes the reading of it. Uh, you know, out loud, a, a really interesting process. But, but this is one that is for me really a, a passage. And I just want to ask you, sort of, you know, what's going on here, and how does it embody some of the things you're trying to do in the collection? Um, and what are the one of the reasons why I pulled it out? It's uh, page one thirty six and one thirty seven. Is because it does mix together so many different. Um, levels of of poetic discourse right it's a poem but it's also a discourse in that it that it's uh you know framing and phrasing realities so i'll read this and then just simply ask you you know what what in terms of all of this like you know blackness history intimacy incarnation family death birth violence pleasure mm-hmm. um what's going on so you write my sisters and i turn to our mothers Stay on the phone too long, laugh as much as we can, make deals where we must. I fall asleep on the couch watching basketball, tonguing the blackness between my teeth, home of the woman who birthed me. I make me my mother's. My sisters make fish, make women who do not rest in. I first meet violence, first meet empire, always urgent care. I, black, I, E-Y-E, I, unfinished. And then the next fa- facing page is just simply this phrase, let the girl work. Mm. That was a great read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you didn't do too bad there. Um, I just, I was following along with you in the, in the book. I, I really love that passage. It's one of the ones that got away from me. And when I say that, I mean, mm. like, it's not about, you know, reporting on, um, my mother's illness. And it's also not about reporting on family memories. So there's a way in which it's not fact (laughs) in a way that Uh I, um, I don't know, it's almost like a future, a future message. Like, I feel like I wrote it. I was like, this is it. I don't actually quite totally understand what it means yet. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I really love about it is how mired it is in the physical action of becoming. Like it's a passage Mm -hmm. about turning, like transforming into creatures, right? Like right into somebody else, like into these creatures. Like it's about, it's almost like a transubstantiation, right? Like it's about becoming Mm -hmm. something else. And like, I think for me, like there are things that I maybe might be coming that I don't quite yet know, but I do know some of the markers of 
what I'm working with, which is empire, which is right. Like, which is like even womanhood, just like even the notion of being a woman, the notion of being a sister. Like these are sort of some material parts that like, I know quite well, I don't Uh quite know what they will lead into, but like, I, I know the, I know maybe like the ingredients that are going into the pot and you know, it's funny, even like the end of that sort of cascade with, especially with the, like the care and the black and the unfin- uh, the unfinished. This is a very black book for me in that I am just, mm-hmm. I like, I know, I like, I sometimes say this, I'm just like a regular ass black girl from, from Flatbush. Like I can't, I'm just a mm-hmm. black girl from Brooklyn and there are, I just can't do anything else other than be that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something so total about it. Mm-hmm. And there is also something like quite, like I can't translate. Like I actually can't do the work of like telling somebody what that means. I know what it mm-hmm. is. I can't tell you what it means. Um, and that was really the only way for me to like get that thought in there. I know part of what it means is looking back at the women who have raised me or back or looking back at the women I'm a part of and seeing the ways in which we look and we look like or resemble each other. Um, You know, those days where I look like my mom or I look like my mother or I look like my sister, I look like my cousin who is my sister. Like we are all each other, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even when we are not um, each other, when we're trying to be ourselves. And all of that is so mumbled up in that next line, which is, just to let the girl work. And it's in italics because it's it's coming from one of the margin characters, right? There are these, there's all this language throughout the book in the margins. And for me, it's these other, these characters that I call imaginaries that sort of take uh-huh. up the work of something else that I can't quite do as Diane, that they are, I think of them as characters, as characters like in the side play of this mm-hmm. book. And it's at a point where the imaginaries are also talking to me and Hmm. they're, I mean, that's sort of like what they're asking perhaps the reader to do is to like, let me just figure that out for a second. Mm -hmm. Like I just kind of laid some things out. I don't know what it is. Maybe you were sort of expecting a Volta. Maybe you were expecting the the language to take a turn that made sense of it all. And the imaginary has to come in and be like, "Mm -mm." like she's kind of working on something. She doesn't even know yet. Just like give her a break. I, that's, I mean, that's, I love that. I mean, what, cause when I read it, I mean, you know, as a reader, you know, my own sort of journey through that, cause I've, re- I've read it multiple times and tried to pay attention to where it takes me. Like you said, it, empire, mother, woman, right. V- you know, big metaphysical, you know, epistemological moments that are opaque and intimate uh, all at the same time, but also fish making fish, you know, (laughs) that's, that's really visceral. You know, when people make fish, the whole apartment complex smells it, the the (laughs) house is full of it, right. It lingers and it's a meal and it's, but also like watching basketball on the couch. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's sort of funny. I, I just will go ahead and mention this. I read that and I was like, I wonder if that was one of the times, like the handful of times you and I have tweeted back and forth about Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> it was. Right? When, when he was playing for Toronto or for San Antonio. But it was sort of interesting because it like draws, again, like that's what I like about the mundane that's also really visceral, but is also part of connections. But then it just sort of pulls itself back in the house. Right. And into history and into empire. 
And at that moment that I had, so this is exactly what you said, that moment that I had reading down that page on the, 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 the left-facing side, um, I was like, well, how do all these things fit together? And I think it actually does that. It's like, let the girl work. It's like that impulse towards reconciliation is something yeah. that you, in that moment, you really just are like, just let it work. Yeah. Like, not Not you do the work as reader. It's like, let the girl work and... When people work, they have privacy, right? But they're also producing something, right? Because yeah. that's what work does is it's a private activity. When you say let the girl work, it's like leave her alone. Yeah. But it's also like she's working to produce something. That's yeah. what you have. And let her keep working. Let me ask you about a, a different passage, if I can. This is uh, going back uh, you know, a dozen or so pages, uh, 120 and 121. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Catholic schooling, um, and I do think there's the real thread across uh, the collection uh, around the sacred and the profane that comes out in this particular moment, um, which I'll read, but it has to be read. Like, just like that <laughs> I and I, like letter yeah. I, first person, and E-Y-E in the previous part that I'd read, it also is here. So you write in this 120 and 121, say, I can't finish writing the book because I ate the poems. Listen. I love that. Listen, right? Stops. Listen, I've sat in the last pew of too many churches to pretend I don't know how to. And then on the facing page, spaced out, two words, which are homophonies, but in writing are two completely different, or maybe not completely different words. Pray, P-R-A-Y, and pray, P-R-E-Y. And this is one of these moments where, and we've, or you've already talked about this, where we have to read and speak at the same time. Yeah. Right? Because it's not just you have to read it to see the difference. It's also you have to hear it in order to not hear the difference. Yeah. And so I'm wondering in terms of this and similar moments, both about, you know, the ambivalence of the profane and the sacred that's sort of in the, at the heart of, of desire, because this book has a lot of desire in it. Right? Yeah. Uh, so profane desire. Uh, desires of all kind. I think, you know, what I just read about fish, you know, that sort of profane yeah. desire. Cause when I read that, I was like, Oh, I want fish. You know I mean? You get that, that, <laughs> that sense of like the smell and the taste and the particular right. satisfaction. Um, but then there's also the sacred of, of, of that passage, which is that it's a prayer, mm -hmm. right. Um, about empire and about mothers and about becoming. Yeah. So I wonder just in this passage and, and just, throwing out those words, the sacred and the profane, um, how these sort of function to make sure that nothing gets reconciled, but everything uh, gets put in relation, perhaps. Yeah, I was actually just going to say, it, for me, I have to go back to relation. And I think something I am always trying to do is relate the sacred and the profane so that they reveal, so that something gets revealed about, you know, either one that I didn't know before. And I'm really always trying to push them against each other. You know, as a person, I'm a very, I'm pretty mild mannered. I'm pretty chill. Like, you know, I, I have a very cool disposition, but uh -huh. I think in terms of my questions, what I'm trying to like work through when I write, it's it's a lot. I, like I'm really a bit obsessed with the sacred, what what gets considered sacred, and mm -hmm. I'm also obsessed with profanity. Like I have a thing of like getting down and dirty, whether uh -huh. it's like sort of smells, right? Like whether it's like 
tastes, whether it's like sort of carnal desires. Like this is the thing, this is like a place where my mind is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love getting into that. I think it's because it's a thing that we lie about a lot. And I, I think the thing about the sacred and the profane is that they're both very true, right? Like your experience of them, whatever that means for you, it's like so absolute that it, it simply is, that it simply is true. If something like totally revolts you, it does that totally. You're just like, this is completely disgusting. And on the other hand, if something is there, if there's something that you find really sacred, really dear, it also does that, right? Like there's a part of mm-hmm. you that's not thinking through it. You're really in a flesh way, feeling your relation to that thing. And I think in this desire, or maybe it's like, I think it's a prayer to get closer to my body, like to just like get back in my body. Like I'm trying to knock those two together. And Uh so there's like always like a double, there's a double take there, right? So like the, Mm -hmm. to pray and to also know that you are prey, right? That you are prey to empire. You are prey to your your you're prey to your body. Your body might just mm-hmm. start eating itself, right? And becomes prey in that way. You're prey to the insurance companies. You're prey, and like all of that is happening at the same time that you are trying to pray for something. That you are trying yeah. to pray for a, bre- a better life. And I f- I feel like maybe kind of like doing this thing of like, you know, reflecting on my mom's lives, like really seeing that play out with Mm -hmm. them both in very different, but very similar ways. And then again, thinking about, okay, what does that mean for me? When am I pray? And when am I trying to pray? And perhaps my sort of dissatisfaction, perhaps my, uh, my um, grief is like also tied up in that. Like maybe I'm just Uh sad that like, I just want to, have the thing that I pray for, but I'm too busy being prey. And like, what is that? Yeah. Well, in some ways, you know, just the way you put it, it's in some ways, that's what it, it, what it's, what the event of dying in a bureaucratic culture is. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you've been autobiographical, I'd be autobiographical myself. You know, when my father passed away, he was struck and killed by a car and, you know, they kept them on life support and um, so that we could all go say goodbye, which is a kind of prayer. It's not yeah. a religious, you don't have to have a faith, but it's it's a way of, you know, I remember holding his hand and, uh, you know, as he was, I mean, he was, just, you know, held together by life support. Right. Um, so not conscious. And so there was like this prayerful moment. We all got our time and it was very, everybody was very quiet, but we also said things and, you know, it was a ritual but then when I left the room, who did I sit down with? Somebody who wanted to know about organ donation. Yeah. And was pressuring me because I became the spokesperson for the family in the moment, um, pressuring me, you know, I felt like prey, you know, I yeah. feel like you're vulnerable, but here's what I want from you. And it is, you know, it's a virtuous thing that he was asking, right? But it's right. still was that prey and prey at the same time. And, you know, um, I don't know how we escape that in in a, our bureaucratic culture that pray and pray, um, and it's really terrifying. But it's also something because it's terrifying because it's it's profane and sacred. It's revolting and and alluring uh, all at the same time. Is something that calls for poetic treatment. Yeah, it's completely wild that you just offered that story because my mom needed a liver transplant. She had an autoimmune liver condition that 
it just kind of showed up one day and was like, hey, like, I'm really going to go wild on you. And she needed a liver transplant. And the thing about living in New York is that you don't get a lot of liver donations because it's not a big driving city. Basically, the liver needs to be live for the donation to work. So, you know, we had a couple of rounds of like things not quite working out. And one of the one of the rounds where it was like, it looked like we were going to get a liver, uh, the family needed to say goodbye. And Mm -hmm. it was this thing where it was really up against the clock and it just took too long. And I had this moment of feeling like, I can't even take that away from them. Like, I can't be mad. Like they're like, you know, like that there is just like a, a ritual, right. A prayer that they need to do. And, I can't look at this person that they have just lost as prey. Like I can't just be sort of like after the the things in this person's body mm-hmm. because it sort of betters my situation. And it was, it felt like such a, it was weird to know that in that moment and to know that I could know that because I have been prey and that I wouldn't, you right. That like, I wouldn't want to be treated uh-huh. in that way. And that that is not, the history of empire. Empire is full of greedy people who take yeah. bodies because they can and because it conveniences them and that they do not think twice about what it means for somebody else along the line. And to have been prey, to have ancestors who have been prey and to now have the knowledge of, no, you don't do that. You just don't do that. Is It's part of what's going on there too. And to sort of have to, at the end of knowing that, knowing that that kind of virtual, that virtuous knowledge, right, also still doesn't get me a liver. It just gets me the thing of being mm-hmm. not even a human, but being a creature and being a creature who might get this liver they need and might not. Being a creature who might be living and might not. And the complete, like complete, complete humility in that. And then mm-hmm. also knowing that is what gets me to a point way later in the book where I'm able to live with someone and make a life with them because Uh I remember that I'm just trying to be a creature with you for a time. Empty Bowl delivers their own eulogy and everything became quiet enough to hear my last labored breath, held time in my wet lungs, walked across the desert carrying every moment we failed, collapsed, Dragged our time deep under sand, stubborn, stalked around in silence, patient for a moment when you weren't looking, crawled into that moment's closet to die in peace, unseen. So let me ask you, um, uh, you know, a couple of questions as as a way of of, of wrapping up. Um, you know, the funny thing about writing a book is that we write with all sorts of intention. Um, we have things <laughs> we want out of the book. Um, and uh, whether it's uh, an explicitly and thematically intimate uh, book like this particular collection of poetry or even an abstract academic book, right? There's so much of yourself in the book Um that then when it's put in the hands of readers is you know, <laughs> brings along with it a lot of anxiety, <laughs> right? Uh, what are they going to see? You know, how are they going to read it? Um, and also, and you've, you've spoken uh, to the, to this already uh, also the desire, hopefully for most of us uh, to not be imperial, 
right? To demand right. like the readers take a particular thing out of the book. But at the same time, we write books um, with an idea of at least how the book forms a sensibility or a set of sensibilities for the reader mm. that they walk away from it with. Mm -hmm. And I say walk away from it because I think there's a difference between what your takeaway, which is like a sound bite or a, right. a slogan or something, but walk away. I like that. I, I always use that phrase because, you know, the way we walk, you know, you can see somebody walk and have a guess if they're sad or happy okay. or, you know, their sense our sensibilities our, our affective states are so in, so captured in our walk, right? So in that sort of idea of walking away from the book, what are some of the hopes that you have for us as readers in terms of the sensibilities that we walk away with and, and the way we walk away differently after reading The Mouth of St. Felix? Oh, that's such a, that's really a great question. I mean, you could have just sort of asked me that in a different way, but like, I think that contextualizing is really helpful and um, generous. I want people to know, or maybe to sort of like learn the ways in which they are just creatures. I think, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I've... I write about my family a lot. I think they are a Trevor trove of content. Um, I think there are things I'm trying to understand about how I got here, how we got here, like what it means to be people, trying to people together. And I, I just happen to look at my family in order to do that. Um, there's something, it feels a bit epic when I think about them, in particular, because when I'm thinking about my family, I'm thinking about whole villages, right? So it's not just these people I'm blood related to, but I'm thinking about sure. these particular communities in um, Southwest Haiti. Um, yeah, it's, I think something that I learned while writing this book was just how much of a creature I am. It does not make me extra special that I sort of was able to turn this language around. It did not bring my mom back, right? She didn't undie with the writing of this book. Uh -huh. I'm still a middle sister, right? There's also something completely mundane about the finishing of the book. It did not turn me into a star. I did not like, you know, it did not get me a house, right? Like, it, uh, there are so many things about my life that have just gone on having finished writing the book. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like a completely different creature for having written it. Um, and there's something, I don't know. It's like a, it's, a, it's like small, again, very humble, very mundane metamorphosis that I want to offer to people as being, possible that you could experience quite truly the mm -hmm. worst thing that you mm -hmm. could have ever imagined and odds are you might just get up the next day and what are you gonna do with that right like what happens again uh -huh. when we sort of stop with the imperial thinking and stop thinking that you know the tragedy of our lives is the entire world that like even in the moments of my mom dying mm -hmm. there were it's so crazy. When she got into the hospital, that's when the Kavanaugh hearings were going on. And there were like so many things that were happening where I got angry. I just wanted the world to stop. I had this feeling of like, yo, like this lady's body is falling apart. Why does everything have to be so big, so loud, so annoying? Why can't the thing that I'm going through take 
precedence? Like, why can't it matter uh-huh. the most? And parts of that are like obvious. Of, that's, of course, like a totally reasonable reaction to have to something way bigger than you can imagine happening to you mm-hmm. and the people you love. But there is... I think where it go, where it could have the potential to go wrong is like when that happen that when that happens in the sort of context of empire or uh, capitalism or imperialism, where then people get feel like they have the right to inflict the kind of violence because they feel like they are you know sort of being uh, violated or that they are just not getting the thing that they want. And like I think there is something about the dissatisfaction of desire, whatever that desire is, whether it's Mm -hmm. wanting your mom to get a liver donation or wanting the person you're dating to just like you back. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That like whatever these desires are, or honestly wanting a piece of fish, wanting a slice of pizza, whatever it is to sort of respect the creatureliness of it, that that is a thing that creatures do. They want things, but to then know that, and maybe sort of even revel in the fact that you might not get it. And like, mm-hmm. that has to be okay. I don't know. I just sort of, I want, that's part of maybe my biggest thing is that like, I wanted to feel humbled by writing this book. And I want people to also feel like it's, they can be humble. Like it's okay to mm-hmm. to feel maybe small in certain places and that there's like an intimacy of that where you're, where your life can really happen. Like what happens when you just be the creature that crawls inside with your other creatures. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I love this, the way that this conversation is really, um, you know, your side of the conversation has really brought out this idea of creature and creatureliness. I mean, it's, a, you know, creature and creatureliness are things that really interest me as, as a, as a theorist, uh, precisely because it's, it, it, it combines the 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 mundane and the sublime. I mean, yeah. you know, creature and creatureliness is linked to creation, right? Which is yeah. linked to God. I mean, God yeah. is the God is the name for the creator. But there's also the way that God is always like dissatisfied with the creation, the flood, <laughs> and everybody's gone. The fire next time, right? <laughs> right. All right, I'm going to make a kid, and he's going to grow up, and you're going to. <laughs> you know, murder him on a cross, you know, it's like, you know, you know, I'm going to like beleaguer you in the desert, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it, and, and religions get built up out of, of not just the sublime beauty of, you know, of, of, you know, Judaism, you know, monotheism, right. Of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's not just the, the beauty and sublimity of, of creation, but also the, the specter of disappointment. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that that creation keeps happening, and so so for me, yeah. this creature creatureliness. I mean, I'm from this conversation. I mean, I'm going to be thinking about it a lot. I mean, it's already a term that I think about a lot in my own work, in my own teaching, my own conversation with others and myself. But this is like opening up like really beautiful dimensions of it because I think it's so interesting the way that I asked you about how you want readers to walk away, and you talked about how readers walk away from this at the same time as talking about yourself walking away from it. Yeah. But that's, I think what that creatureliness is, is it's like the difference between you and the reader is sort of collapsed in this, yes. this idea. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it always, it always ends in relation. I think in, I think mm-hmm. in sort of like thinking about 
how I want somebody else to walk. Like I have to become them or that I have to relate to them in some way. And so that I become, that I become reader. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta figure out this creature thing. I think that's really what I'm on these days. I, there's something there that the, that the human can't because too much has happened. I think it it is this thing of that, like, you know, we go on until we don't, and then we keep going on. I think some, I think that's what creaturely thinking makes me think of that. Like you really do, you, you go on until you stop and then you keep going, whether that is the people around you, right. The people that you relate to keep going or whether it's that somebody's looking at your photographs and puts them in a book. And now you, you continue to keep going that those women are so alive in those photos in a way that doesn't it doesn't track with the fact that you know yeah. they, that they have both they have both passed away and i think there is something about yes like something in there that's like it's beyond the human like it's not about turning them into humans they i get it they were they they were and are women that's not really my task but it's like mm-hmm. finding the creature inside that makes it something something else so um, creature creation. Let me take it out of these uh, very transhistorical, you know, affective, uh, existential uh, dimension, <laughs> and just ask as a sort of final question. You know, where does this also lead you as a writer? Right, you've talked a lot about how it sort of where it has led you and uh, what things it's opened uh, up for you in terms of 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 a, of a thinker and a person and someone positioned between you know geographies, Haiti. You know, yeah. Flatbush, um, mother, daughter. Um, but as a writer, sort of, and this is a what's next kind of question, which I always hesitate to ask because you should have a right to just sit with your book, right? But right. I also know, you know, you're 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 a, a creative, and so so what's next? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, after my mom passed, maybe six months later, my paternal aunt I have one aunt left and it's on my father's side and she handed me this book of poems that my father apparently had written in his days and I was a little like you know it's the you know death is weird because it like opens these it just creates chasms. Some of those chasms feel like a deep grief abyss that you can't climb out of, but also some of those chasms are opening, openings mm-hmm. for other connections. Sure. And, you know, my aunt lives in Brooklyn, but we're not uh, incredibly close. And um, for reasons that are often having to do with giant families. Um, but she handed me this thing of poems and I just rolled my eyes. And I was like, of course, this man was a poet. Of course, nobody bothered to tell me until I was like 32. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, yeah. And there are these poems written in French. And, you know, something that's been on my mind is learning French again. I haven't studied French since high school um, and perhaps translating them and maybe then translating them into Creole from the French and then trying to respond to him in English. And it's it makes sense to me as something to work on because, because of the book that I just wrote. And even before I wrote the book, I was working on this play that had a little bit, it was a little bit inspired by um, thinking about my parents. But this, these are conversations I'm, I'm always trying to have. And it's not an obsession of like, 
my people, right? Like I'm not upset. I'm not trying to be like, oh my God, my family is so important. Like these are the only narratives that matter. But it is trying to understand the world through these intimate relations and intimate acts. And for Mm -hmm. me, that kind of opacity really opens up to something so much larger and so I, I think this is what how I'm thinking about myself maybe in the next couple of years is like somebody who's like working deep within family archive to perhaps understand these geographies. I'm really thinking a lot about the, um, the relationship and the miles between Haiti and the U.S. And, um, you know, there's like one timeline of just like, you know, thinking about these people making it over. But there's also the other timeline of thinking about things like uh, the AIDS epidemic and the right, like all of these like mm-hmm. sort of like uh, um, political uh, actions that go on. And I think that's maybe what my interest in figuring out my family's business mm-hmm. in is, is really thinking about it in world time. And again, thinking about it in world time outside of U.S. imperial time. Because I think there's a other Amazing. thing where, like, when you sort of focus so much on what's happening in the states that you can't see, you cannot see the world, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of my obsession with thinking about the links between Haiti and the U.S., which I maybe I didn't realize before. I think I just thought these stories were crazy and that it would be fun to kind of figure them out. But now <laughs> I'm really like, oh, there is something else happening, and there are people who are trying to live their lives while world empires wreak havoc. And if mm-hmm. I can just sort of trace these stories a bit tighter, look at them a bit closer, maybe something else can get revealed. I love that. I can't wait to see uh, where this work on world time, <laughs> U.S. imperial time goes. I, I, that's such a such a wonderful framing. Um, yeah, that's really rich and promising. And um, yeah, I can't wait to to see where that goes. And I really, I'm so grateful that you took time for this. Um, you know, I've always had a lot of respect for you as as, as a thinker and observer. I I, I love this this. Uh, collection of, of poems. Um, and this was uh, really amazing to hear you talk about it. I, I think uh, it adds so much texture to to the collection and, and will make me reread it uh, with a different kind of uh, intensity. And so thank you for that. Oh, thank, thank you, for you so time. much, John. This was really wonderful. I don't think I've actually had the chance to slow down with the book in this way. Um, up till now in terms of talking about it with someone who has had the time to read it through. So this was really, really wonderful. I feel like I actually learned some things that I hadn't quite realized before. So I just have to thank you again for reaching out and making the time. I can get onto tangents. So I am, I appreciate your rolling <laughs> with me. <laughs> They're all really interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing uh, your next work plays, poems and so forth. Um, And thank you again. Yeah, I'll see you online around playoff time. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Take care, Diane. All right. You too. There are things between us that are dead, crisp and unchanging, wherever we dwell. Whether we crawl or are swept, we build our home with death for a neighbor. Musicians' condo on the cemetery's lot. 
dense violet fog the night you say you are loving me. Grief engulfs my eyes wherever I behold you. We sit in pews, we sit in waiting rooms, we look forward, we hold our breath, we carry, we carry over. We cross streets made holy by what we've turned into love. We cross streets where our loves have been taken away. We see a cockroach crawling from the corner of our left eye and pray that if we ignore it, then. Sun glistens over my mother's ledgers as much as it illuminates skin. I trace amaranthine fingers over all. I am no saint over city's hallowed dirt. I am no saint carried over city's cursed asphalt. I am no saint. Let avenues turn to dust. When sisters' eyes ring the bell for the day's low tide, the sun shines, the sky a violent it's never been. <laughs>